welcome to the Create Something Awesome Today podcast, where it's all about educating and motivating creative pros and entrepreneurs from around the world with simple and easy to implement ideas. And of course, helping you create something awesome today. And now, welcome your host. He is the founder of Founder of Awesome Creator Academy, a YouTube educator, and the biggest Star Wars nerd you'll ever meet, Roberto Blake. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Create Something Awesome Today podcast. This is your host, Roberto Blake, helping you create something awesome today. Welcome back. So we have an exciting show planned for all of you today. We're going to be talking about YouTube monetization secrets. And no, that is not just a catchy, clickbaity title. Something recently that happened to this podcast is that it got monetized on YouTube very recently here in the back end of December 2021 as we head into 2022. And the podcast actually got monetized very quickly after applying to the YouTube AdSense partnership program. So for many of you who are not familiar, the way that YouTube content creators make their money outside of things like brand deals, selling merchandise, selling their own products or services, is through ad revenue that YouTube splits with content creators. And they give content creators a 55-45 split with 55% going to the content creator. They also allow, once your channel is monetized and meets the requirements, they allow something they call super chats, which are direct donations that a viewer can give to a YouTuber for their content during their live streams. And YouTube splits that with creators 70-30 with 70% going to the content creator. And so these are really interesting monetization streams and they're actually the top in the industry for content creators because for those of you who don't know, live streaming with Twitch, you've seen full-time Twitch streamers, those affiliates and partners on Twitch, they get a 50-50 split on the donations to their channel and the ad revenue to their channel. YouTube is much much more generous. YouTube is probably the most generous platform when it comes to splitting with creators. And so that's why YouTube are OGs and pioneers in the creator economy. And this is part of the reason everyone wants to be a YouTuber. So if you're in the live audience and you're watching uh, right now and you're not an audio listener or you're not watching the replay, there's a lot here that we're going to talk about with regard to YouTube, with regard to monetization, with regard to ads. And the thing is, I am going to talk a bit about my own YouTube analytics for the podcast channel and what the projected ad revenue will be like in the future uh, for this channel. So that's something that a lot of you probably will be really interested in and looking forward to getting some details on. But what I'm going to ask you to do is if you are watching the replay, or you are in the live audience, go ahead and share this episode of the podcast anywhere that is appropriate to that where you know other content creators can benefit from it. And this will actually dramatically help with people getting the right information because I want them to know about things like RPMs and CPM rates and what those are. I want them to know about the policies around getting monetized versus demonetized on YouTube and what the different ad rate situations are for different niches in YouTube. So something that a lot of people are going to learn on this episode of the podcast is that the podcast is new. 
and is now, as far as the monetization aspect of the podcast, the podcast ability to earn ad revenue is new. But even as a new channel, I flashed an interesting stat that we will get into, which is the $23 estimated CPM rate for the podcast channel. And I will explain what that means and what that potentially means in terms of the ability and capacity for the podcast channel to earn, because this is not a CPM rate that most YouTube channels get. Those of you who are familiar and have been doing YouTube for quite a while may realize, wait a minute, my your CPM rate, if you're doing like an entertainment channel or doing something else, might be like $2, might be $5. It might be lower than that. Why does Roberto's podcast get a $23 potential CPM rate when he just got monetized? Why is it projecting that on a channel with 1,600 or so subscribers that's been monetized for just 72 hours? Yes, I got monetized that quickly. Those answers are coming. Like The answers to that and more are coming, and we will deep dive into it. But real quick, since we did finally get our first super chat sticker which is a donation to the channel i do want to kind of shout that out it's coming from shana prince i'm hoping i'm pronouncing that right and it's a super chat sticker which is for ten dollars she just has a thank you sticker there and that's kind of dope and, and the thing about that is so thank you for that shana um out of that because of youtube splitting the ad revenue 70 30 i'll actually get seven dollars of that ten dollars when YouTube pays me for my December content on January, probably January 21st of 2022, I'll be paid for any revenue that I earn in the month of December, 2021. So that's another thing a lot of people don't realize about YouTube. With YouTube, you get paid kind of on a one month delay schedule. So whatever money you earn in December, you receive that in January and any money you earn in January, you see that in February and so on and so forth, usually around the, the 21st. So I'm going to be breaking all this down. There's a lot to cover here in this episode of the podcast. This is one of those info dump episodes of the podcast. So you'll definitely want to make sure you're staying tuned for that and that if you haven't already that you share this out. But really quickly, speaking of monetization and getting the bills paid around here, Let's have a quick word from a sponsor. We thrive thanks to the support from our sponsors. Here's a word from one of them. When it comes to being a content creator, being able to get paid for your brand deals, being able to get paid for your work, being able to capture money and being able to manage that money properly is one of the biggest headaches for content creators of all sizes. And that's where our good friends at Creative Juice come in. Banking trusted by the best content creators, including myself and other creators like Mr. Beast, Shelby Church, Graham Stephan, and more. If you haven't heard of Creative Juice, you can sign up for free. And one of the best tools that I like is the fact that they actually give you a free invoicing tool for your brand deals and a free Juice bank account. And this actually saves me real money right now. I had a brand deal for about five thousand dollars and i didn't have it go through my juice bank account directly and in terms of the payment processor that actually cost me 150 dollars coming into my account and another 15 dollars going out so 
I, I'm going to be saving hundreds of dollars, if not more per year, just by using Creative Juice to do my invoicing. And they have a lot of other cool benefits and perks where you can actually get discounts from things like Apple, BH Photo Video, Epidemic Sound, and more. So you can actually sign up for a free Juice account. And if you use the code Roberto Juice, right now they're running a promo where they will actually deposit $10 into a funded Juice bank account for any amount that you put in. So this is something that myself and the leading creators are using, and I am personally an investor backing this with my own money on top of using it for my brand deals, for invoicing, and for more. So if you wanna go ahead and sign up, you can actually use my link in the description. Thank you to our friends over at Creative Juice for sponsoring today's episode of the podcast. So yeah, let's talk a little bit more about the monetization process when it comes to YouTube, because I know it's something that a lot of you probably have a lot of questions about. The thing is, YouTube monetization has some very specific requirements that we have to go through even to get monetized in the first place. First hurdle, you have to get 1,000 subscribers on YouTube. This is probably for a lot of people the first big hurdle because they're struggling usually with their initial content, getting ideas for that content, getting people to watch, let alone subscribe, all of those different things. So that's usually the first big hurdle that people struggle with. The answer that I've come up with when it comes to getting subscribers is this. If you actually focus on retention rates and not only getting views, which you can do with titles, thumbnails, topics, timing, you can get the views. Getting viewers to turn to subscribers is your on-camera performance, your personality, your editing, the overall visual and audio quality. You know, you can live with bad video, bad audio is another case entirely. You have to get higher retention. If you can get 30 to 50% average view durations, high retention rates, then it typically goes better for you and you have a much stronger chance of the, the viewers of your videos actually then becoming subscribers to your videos if you have a good average view duration and retention rate. So that's actually gonna be really important for a lot of you to convert viewers to subscribers. Getting viewers in the first place, topic, title, thumbnail, timing. Master those, it'll be a lot easier. Also easier to get people to subscribe if you stop making random content and get focused on who's my audience and only make stuff that has kind of some guarantee of an audience for that individual video every time and kind of focus on consistency within a niche or a theme. And that's actually really gonna help you a lot. And so then the next hurdle is the 4,000 hours of watch time, which is tremendously difficult unless you're doing a podcast channel. Uh, the watch time requirements can be really rough, but what I came up with is if you target getting 100,000 views channel-wide over the course of the 12 months, because you have to get watch time requirement within 12 months, like, and it's a rolling target. So it's a month to month rollover. You don't get reset to zero automatically. It's a month to month rollover. The simplest way to approach it, in my opinion, is to target getting 100,000 views across the videos on your entire channel over that 12 month period. Best way to do that is getting the 100,000 views, focused, consistent topics, titles, thumbnails, that kind of thing, and then getting an average view duration of at least three to four minutes. This is gonna help you out because some videos will underperform in terms of views. So this will 
be your like safety margins. Okay. So the other, the other thing you have to think about with that, at least as far as I'm concerned is, okay, we, if we're doing that, then what's the next most important thing that we can be doing to make sure we're meeting those requirements and getting that watch time? Well, the thing is the 100,000 views and the three minute average gives you 300,000 minutes. 4,000 hours is 240,000 minutes of watch time, almost a quarter million minutes. So that's the calculation for your safety margin. Why do I need it to be three to four minutes of watch time? And what does that mean? Well, to get three to four minutes of average view duration in terms of watch time, you have to know YouTube videos on average across the entire channel uh, website, regardless of what type of channel you're making, most content creators only get like a 30% retention rate if they're lucky. So like knowing that if you're Mr. Beast, you get 50% or higher. Everyone else, it's like 30%. Um, so on average. So if you know that, then that means you know that you can't get away with just making shorter videos and meeting those requirements because you'd have to get people to watch 100% of the video. Probably not going to happen. So your best bet is to make 8 to 12-minute videos. If you make 8 to 12-minute videos and people watch 30% of it, then that means that you know, you're going to get closer to getting that three to four minutes of watch time that you need on average. And even if your videos underperform in terms of views, getting more minutes of average view duration gets you closer and closer for the views you are getting to your 4,000 hours of watch time, aka your 2,000, uh, sorry, for, uh, 240,000 minutes of watch time. So that's the breakdown. That's the math. That is the formula. That is the secret. And I've made uh, videos about this on my main YouTube channel, breaking it down even further. But that is the secret to meeting the requirements of 1,000 subscribers and 4,000 hours of watch time <clears throat> of your videos. If you're getting good average view duration, 1% of those 100,000 views in 12 months gets you to 1,000 subscribers over that period of time. Okay, and then the watch time, you can break that down with math. It's a formula. That is the systemic way to approach YouTube. That is the systems-driven, data-driven way to approach YouTube. And it actually works. And um, if you need just like kind of a further indicator of this working, with my podcast channel, this is how it worked out. Because if I look at um, just 2021, in 2021, you need it to be every 12 months and you need to stay in a 12 month rolling cycle at um, 4,000 hours of public watch time or more. Uh, in the last 12 months, even though I've not been really uploading that much, except for in the month of December for my channel, it's uh, 4.6 in terms of the watch hours. And we're going to keep going since I'm doing Monday through Friday now with the podcast, that's going to make it considerably easier so in terms of the viewership, that makes sense. And in the month, uh, sorry, not the month, the year of 2021, we got another um, 600 plus subscribers. We got most of that here with uh, just going, I think in the last little bit here, we got most of that in the last you know, 30 to 90 days. So you, you can see how that makes a difference. Uh, like in terms of the lifetime of the podcast, it actually performed better in terms of uh, getting a like not needing to get a hundred thousand 
um, views to do this, but that's because of the long form content plus my existing reputation didn't hurt, but it's also different content from my main YouTube channel. So uh, take that as you will kind of with like a grain of salt. Another thing you need to know is that in terms of your ad revenue data on this stuff, it has a usually about roughly 48 hour delay, like a two hour, uh, two day delay cycle on its reporting. So there's that part of it. Uh, CPMs and RPMs are a term you need to learn. And that comes down to cost per thousand views as CPM, which means what are advertisers willing to pay per thousand views um, across your content. RPM is the direct revenue that you did earn that you will take home estimated per thousand views. And then you have your total estimated ad revenue. Keep in mind, there is, like I said, usually about a 48 hour delay on this reporting data. So in the case of the podcast, it's saying right as of this moment to date that the podcast has made uh, $3.55. During the program, we've already gotten $15 in super chats already today. So that doesn't count. And it's going to need to accumulate the views that we got over the last 48 hours. So that's not an accurate tally. And that also means that the RPM, the revenue per thousand that we've earned and that we take home, that's not an accurate tally just yet either. So the RPM, the revenue per mil, revenue per thousand views tells you how much you earn per thousand views. And just keep in mind that this is estimated and this does like estimate the revenue included in ad revenue, YouTube premium, channel memberships, super chats, super stickers. And so this tells you just how much you've actually earned within the YouTube platform. And this is after YouTube takes its share, takes its 45%. So this is basically a way to calculate your take-home pay per 1,000 views across all the ways that YouTube lets you earn on the platform. So this is, this is something that's very difficult for people to understand. The reason that we look at the CPM rates and how much advertisers directly play on the advertising playbacks of our, our YouTube videos is because that gives us an indicator of our channel's overall potential to earn money. And the higher that CPM rate is, it means that is how much more valuable ads are on our channel. And so this is really important for a lot of you to know and to understand. Now, let me put this in layman's terms. With um, a CPM rate of $23 or higher, it means that this channel's potential would be that per every 1,000 views on the channel, and this is not including the Super Chat donations, which, by the way, thank you for that. Th without the Super Chat donations, just from ad views alone when view when ads show up on the videos on this podcast from YouTube it means that our potential is probably to earn about $10 for every 1000 views most normal YouTube channels in entertainment niches will only earn $1 per 1000 views $2 if they're lucky this is why i've seen viral content creators get like a million views and only earn $500. Not all views are valued equally because not all advertisers will run the same ads or content on the same channels. 
So this is really important. This is really important to understand. This is why podcast channels can actually drastically out-earn other types of channels depending on what type of content it is. Another factor in this is this is actually really only assuming pre-roll ads and post-roll ads. This isn't even really assuming that we have mid-roll ads. And if you're doing an hour-long podcast, it's completely justifiable to have an ad play happen every 20 to 30 minutes in a uh, you know a two-hour show. So you could justify having maybe two mid-roll ads, a pre-roll ad, and a post-roll ad, even if you're also doing sponsors, just because of the length we're talking about in a 60 to 90-minute program. So podcasts have massive potential. It's part of why even with large YouTube channels like um, H3 Productions, for example, their podcast channel drastically out earns whatever the main channel could have earned as an entertainment channel with gaps and goofs. And they were often vulnerable to being demonetized for some of their content being a little bit more on the edgier side of comedy. But with their podcast channel, between sponsors ad revenue, it's not even close. Then they're able to take the split, the the clips from that channel and make a clip show channel, monetize those. And then on top of that, they now have a YouTube shorts channel they call a bites channel. And they're getting the creator fund revenue on that. And those are exploding with views and they have endless content for this. So you can see podcasts can be massively lucrative on YouTube and even a small podcast can earn if it has a loyal audience. That's not even counting channel memberships and super chats. Speaking of super chats, by the way, one of my most loyal viewers, one of my super fans, uh, What Chef channel just did a $5 super chat donation. Thank you for that. So in a situation like this, um, when you have a loyal audience that wants to support you, even a $2 donation, even a $5 donation, a $10 donation, a few of those add up. And in many ways, that actually with live streaming content, and now YouTube is introducing another monetization feature called Super Thanks, where people can do donations on recorded videos and not just live streams. It'll work very similar. Just remember that YouTube on those pays 70% to the creator versus the 50-50 split on ad revenue. So when you take all this into consideration, the, the possibilities for content creators to earn uh, become very significant very quickly. Now, there's an interesting question that came up in the live chat here. Um, do we get paid if all the people skip ads or do we still get a small portion? Well, this is where YouTube premium actually is really helpful. So if people skip ads, you typically, this is just typically speaking, aren't necessarily paid when people skip the ads that show up in the YouTube video. However, YouTube also advertises banner ads called display ads. Sometimes they show up on the bottom of the video. Sometimes they show up on the right-hand side of the video. So you get a small amount of money for those. It's much less significant than the video ads, obviously. It, it earns a lot less, but it's something. So there's that part. And then if any of your viewers have YouTube Premium and they're paying to have ad-free YouTube, you get a small portion of that, and it's based on watch time. You'll never know 
what proportion of it because it's split among all YouTube creators, uh, you know, as a pool of um, watch time share. But here's the good news. If you do something like live videos and podcast, um, your watch time is really high. So the ability to earn from that can be significant too, or if you make long form content. So this, this just tells you that, like I said, you can make money on regular uploads to YouTube, like my main channel does. You can make money on short form content. However, YouTube shorts, you don't necessarily use that to earn real money on YouTube, even if you're going viral. And I'll give you an example. YouTube shorts content actually does not add to the watch time to help you qualify for the YouTube partner program. A lot of people don't realize that. This is why I said, hey, YouTube monetization secrets, you're welcome. Please share this episode of the podcast if you haven't already. If you haven't shared this episode of the podcast, you need to, because this is stuff people really ought to be knowing. And so when it comes to YouTube Shorts, you have to end up qualifying for the YouTube Shorts Creator Fund. They're being very vague about the requirements for that, but you don't necessarily have to get 4,000 hours of watch time or even get 1,000 subscribers to qualify for the Shorts Creator Fund. And this is very similar to TikTok's creator fund, but like that's really something that can be lucrative if you have the ability to go viral over and over and over again, and it's easy for you to make that short form content, then sure. It's something we're going to be experimenting with on my channel, but we're also just going to make a shorts channel and we're going to upload a hundred videos to the shorts channel and test it, see what happens, go off of data and try to use that before we really do anything too serious on the main channel. Just because we don't want to experiment as much with my main channel. One of the reasons we have things like the podcast channel is I can do, like if I'm gonna do a Monday to Friday podcast, it means that I can just talk to my audience. I can make, in a way I can make what I wanna make, talk to my audience about whatever I wanna talk about feel closer to my community. Now that it's monetized, there's also obviously an incentive there to be consistent. Easier to be consistent once your channels are monetized, by the way. It's one of the uh, bigger barriers for people being successful on YouTube is the motivation, which we talked about on another episode of the podcast is that sometimes the motivation to keep going, you need incentives. Monetization, even a little bit of monetization, the opportunity can help motivate people in terms of being the carrot there. So that becomes important just from a creator mindset standpoint over a period of time. So when you think about that, you, you have to understand that. And again, there are things like we talked about, like with qualifying the watch time. There's, if you have a watch time that either is not from public videos, like these videos have to be public for you to have qualified watch time. That's a factor that a lot of people don't consider is that it has to be public videos. YouTube Shorts, if it comes from the YouTube Short Shelf, which is how videos go viral, do not count toward your qualifying watch time. So it has to be qualifying watch time. And again, it has to be in a 12-month, 365-day rolling cycle. So if you fall out of the 4,000 hours, at any given point, you're out of the partner program until you requalify, and then you have to apply all over again. A lot of people don't realize that. Another thing that people don't realize 
is on top of that rolling uh, period with that, you can't go six months without uploading or you're out. You have to, you can't go six months without either uploading a video or posting to your YouTube community tab or you're out. You're out of the ad program. And the other thing people don't realize is YouTube has a policy called the right to monetize, which means that they can run ads on your content, whether you get paid for them or not as a partner, they have the right to monetize all content on the platform. Now, a lot of people, a lot of small YouTubers think that this policy was made to just screw over small YouTubers. There's a lot of conspiracy theories about that. My own personal conspiracy theory has always been that this has more to do with what happens if a creator acts up, gets canceled, and YouTube has to slap them on the wrist and say, hey, you're out of the partner program for 30 days, 90 days. This is your punishment. My theory has always been that this was never about monetizing small YouTubers and like taking the ad revenue away from small YouTubers, whether they are monetized or not, which you only really feel that way if you're a small YouTuber. And I totally get why people think that way. But logically speaking, since 90% of all of the traffic on YouTube goes to only the top 3% of channels, you know, just like the stock market, just like other things, it's a, a rich getting richer scenario. Since that's the case, the bottom 97% uh, of channels combined are not worth the top 3% because they get 90% of the traffic. So that's like all the money. The bottom 10% the bottom of all traffic divided amongst the other 97% of channels is not meaningful enough. If that's the case, Roberto, then why do it? Again, that's the small YouTuber mentality of like, oh, what was me or my circumstances? It's no, it's because if even a handful of big creators uh, have drama or are getting canceled, like with uh, drama get in with the beauty community, for example, if you have like three or four big, massive creators that get millions upon millions of views every single day and premium ad rates get canceled and you have to make a public statement and distance them from them as a platform or YouTube, you have to kind of slap them on the wrist, say, hey, behave and disavow them. For 30 or 90 days, you would literally be losing potentially millions of dollars a month in your 55-45 split with those larger YouTubers. So again, I don't, I can't prove this, but my business shark conspiratorial brain says this. Well, instead of losing money when big creators act up, what if I doubled my money by literally saying, okay, I slapped them on the wrist, but I'm not taking, I'm not turning off the ads. I'm just not going to pay them. And then all of a sudden YouTube gets to double the money while those creators are canceled instead of losing it all together. Like that sounds like the better, like from a business standpoint, that sounds like the right idea. That sounds like the right move. Uh, again, I'm not really here to condemn or condone that particular policy as much as I am here to say, from my point of view, as a business person, just from a ruthless business standpoint, I could see why that would be the move. That's that galaxy brain, like imposter level move. And that makes much more sense to me than oh, we're trying to screw over small YouTubers. It makes more sense to me if the idea is we're not going to lose money when big creators get canceled. We're going to double our money when big creators get canceled. And we're going to save face publicly and make more money instead of lose money. That's what would make sense to me. I'm not necessarily saying that that's 100%
facts or the case. That's just what my instinct would be. And again, I, I know everyone's not going to agree with that. Again, small YouTubers are absolutely convinced that the, the goal here was to disenfranchise or screw over small YouTubers. And so I get that, but I, I just... I just think that it's like a much simpler thing than that to follow the money and say, well, what do they really stand to gain here? So that's, you know, that's the thing. Um, Doug Houston in the live viewership here has a point. He says, but do advertisers want to be seen on those channels if drama happens? Not all sponsors drop people. And the thing is exposure to the audience is still valuable and a lot of brands don't completely distance themselves altogether, you, you know, because again, the loyal audience is still there. Those creators are still getting millions of views. And the thing is, as far as association, a lot of times they can just go, we're not going to take the time to rework our entire advertising department or what we are or not advertising on over this. And that's largely, a, okay, fine. Not to mention that again, when creators are canceled, it's usually a silent majority situation where most of the viewers are like, I don't really care. I'm watching this for entertainment reasons and purposes only, and I'm getting free content and I don't care. Like a lot of, like, let's be very real. A lot of people, they don't really have moral qualms about what they consume when it comes to free content, let alone what they buy. The world would look very differently if they did. A lot of the people who do, God bless them, Vocal minority, vocal minority. Like if I wanted to really go to the extreme of my ethics and values and what that allows me to buy, the reality is that means I literally just can't buy anything ever. Basically, I'd be reduced to I can't buy anything ever. And that's probably true for most people. So mentally, it's too exhausting for people. So the majority of people don't care. And you can literally look to, unless it's something absolutely bad, like heinous, something that qualifies as a crime that you can do jail time for. Other than that, people don't care. And to be real, I'm not judging them for it because that's probably the right attitude since it literally has no impact and meaning for their lives. And they probably have more important things that directly affect them to be emotionally invested in. And so there's, there's that aspect of it. That's Again, that's just my point of view on it, but I'm also following the data. I'm not saying that that's the right or wrong thing. I'm saying that's the reality, and that's what the data tells us. The data tells us that majority of a person's audience, if it's not something that involves criminal charges or it's not absolutely the most heinous thing that someone can do, then most of the viewers are like, I just want to watch this thing. And for the advertisers, just are like, mm, there's still an audience there to be marketed to. And so it's business as usual. And, you know, it is what it is. Um, I'm of the opinion from a mental health standpoint that everybody should just kind of not care about things that don't affect them. And I know that sounds callous or that sounds like, oh, well, what about principles? What about ethics? It's like, I think we can probably agree after the last two years that the world has too many emotionally exhausting things to put on people's plate, especially just from purely a mental health standpoint. How many things can you care about at one time? For a lot of people, that amount is getting smaller and smaller and smaller every day. And the thing is, I can't really blame people for that. And I can't really say that that's wrong.
the amount of things that a person can reasonably care about is shrinking. And that's probably a reflection of what is healthy and appropriate for most people. Frankly, people being overly invested in having a parallel social relationship with content creators, being overly invested in outrage culture, being overly invested in things that don't actively affect them has been proven time and time and time again to not be healthy. Doom scrolling during the pandemic was massively unhealthy for people. Um, it, it, it just was really bad. Um, people have let things like politics divide their families. It's causing divorces, estrangement between parents and children, causing breakups. There's just so many things that people can be emotionally invested in at a time. Most of them don't directly affect them. Some of them do, and it's not, it's not good. It's not good. And the thing is, social media has kind of scaled the, the direct problems and impact of that. I don't think we can blame the technology entirely for our bad behavior, but we do have to look at it as a contributing factor and where it creates some vulnerabilities. And then we have to take accountability and responsibility for that for ourselves. And that's kind of the ultimate point here that I'm making is that um, we need to look at um, our own behavior of how we use these platforms a lot more. And I'm more in favor of people who are content creators treating this like a business and a career. Um, you can be a hobby creator. You can be a career like creator. You can treat it like a business and like a profession. And I think that's valid. I think this is a valid profession. The thing is, I think that you also have to create some healthy emotional boundaries when it comes to participating in the internet. I think if you're going to live a certain portion of your life online, that you have to get a better sense of what your boundaries are, your emotional control, and your emotional investment. Like, I think that that's so drastically underrated in terms of like, well, what's a healthy version of this look like? Like, I think we keep seeing so many problems because I think people don't have a healthy relationship with how they create or how they consume content on the internet. And people don't set the appropriate boundaries in their career uh, with the audience, with the brands, uh, with uh, their own like collaborators. There's just a lot. And so the business aspects of this, I think it's better when you treat it like a legitimate career and you treat it like a career in, say, for example, like if you were a sports athlete. There's a healthy version of it where you rest. There's a healthy relationship and bond with your team. There's a healthy relationship to be had with the fans, but there's also respect and there's boundaries and they're standing up for yourself. And so, excuse me. So like we did a dedicated episode of the podcast talking specifically about boundaries. I definitely think you should watch it. In the future, I actually plan to talk to other creators specifically and always ask the question, how are you setting boundaries? Um, what does that look like for you? How do you deal with criticism from the audience? What does that look like from you? How do you set boundaries with the brands? Have you ever had to stand up for yourself when working for a brand? And have you ever felt disrespected? Like that's that's something that I think really needs to be covered. Um, but yeah, going back to some stuff on the monetization front, something that I think people need to understand is that with a lot of these things, not all channels, not all channels will get high CPMs like this and will not have as high earning potential directly 
from advertisements. And that's why having good relationships with sponsors is important. Diversifying into things like affiliate revenue becomes massively important. Having direct support from people who are donating to you as fans, that becomes important. Look into things like membership communities, whether it's channel memberships on YouTube, using Patreon, or setting up your own membership. Like uh, with me, I have a coaching membership with awesomecreatoracademy.com that I built on Kajabi, selling your own products like I do with the YouTube starter kit, the brand deal starter kit. Um, in the future, we're doing the podcaster starter kit and the live stream starter kit. You know, having direct abilities to monetize outside of the platform is important because we talked about demonetization. So even if you don't have an, a situation where um, you're temporarily demonetized because, oh, you're being canceled or, oh, brands are disassociating with you, you can get demonetized in other ways. And sometimes what you'll have is if you are dealing in fair use content, you could have copyright claims, even false copyright claims, where your ad revenue is in limbo or seized uh, by a brand that's saying they have the right to that money. This is something we talked about with the totally not Mark situation where um, it was uh, an anime YouTuber had a problem with Toei Animation claiming 150 pieces of their content. 150 pieces of, of their content. So there is a real issue with false copyright claims that then take your ad revenue. Even Mr. Beast, Mr. Beast had um, a issue with regard to um, brands copyright claiming his content in the past. He's since gotten really smart about things, but they would sing two seconds of a song or something and it'd be like, oh, we're claiming that and you have to dispute it. And so the money gets tied up or you might not get it. So that can be a real problem. And so having other ways to earn and to monetize, diversifying that becomes super important, super important. And so for me, one of the first ways I started earning over $1,000 on my channel was through affiliate marketing and so basically taking a commission percentage for things I would recommend. For me, it'd often be things like, you know, the camera gear, lenses, laptops, that sort of thing, right? Eventually, I then uh, started using the channel to pitch my coaching service with Awesome Creator Academy, and then started selling digital products like the YouTube Starter Kit. It's not a course. YouTube Starter Kit and Brand Deal Starter Kit aren't a course. They're digital download resources and templates and things like that. There is some information in them. There's some education stuff, uh, and there's a lot of checklist downloads and things like that. Uh, in fact, Matt and Just TV said, hey, I recently got your Brand Deal Starter Kit, and it's so incredibly helpful. Fantastic product. Thank you for the shout out on that, Matt and Just TV. Appreciate you. So. I mean, it's things, it's, it's things like that. Um, and different niches have different earning opportunities, whether it's brand deals, get you certain sponsorships that are higher in different niches, affiliate revenue, more opportunities in certain niches, CPM rates that are higher in different niches, gaming probably being a lower CPM niche, tech being a higher one, online business being a higher one, tutorials being a higher one. Um, Vesma asks, so is it possible that high CPM is related to making more evergreen content than entertainment based on your personal experience and the people that you coach and teach? There's a couple of things at play. That's a great question. So a couple of things that play there would be um, evergreen content can keep earning you money because it will keep getting views versus 
um, tapering off. So that's a big part of it. The other thing is long form content lets you place more ads in a video. So to give you a sense of what I'm talking about, if I go into a piece of content, um, I'm going to go to the monetization part of a piece of content. So in YouTube, if I go to an, a great interview that I did, interviews can be really good for this, like uh, with my friend Sarah Dici. I can uh, look at where ad breaks are placed and they could be every 20 to 15 minutes in like a 90 minute episode or something, right? Or in an hour long episode. So you could have a bunch of mid rolls and that could actually really help. You can customize where these ad breaks are. YouTube in my case did them automatically. I'll probably go back and tweak a lot of these myself because I think that four ad breaks might be excessive on YouTube's part. So it'll probably be three and I'll probably fiddle around with where they're placed. You can also choose different ad types. The display ads are by default. So those are the banner ads that appear on YouTube videos on the right-hand side. There's overlay ads, which are the banner ads that sit on the, the bottom of a video itself as an overlay ad. So you click those off. There's a such thing as sponsored cards. I'm less familiar with that. They rarely show up, but a lot of that can tie to um, different brands that uh, may appear in a video. And then there's the ads, the video ads themselves, and you can have skippable or non-skippable. Non-skippable pays the most, but they are the most annoying ads. So I don't enable non-skippable ads. As my default, that's turned off as a default for my main channel and for the podcast channel. And it'll be turned off whenever my music channel is monetized. That'll be turned off there. You can do what you want, but I've always turned these non-skippable ads off for the last four years, I think. For the last four years, I've turned that off. Uh, Mid-rolls, I started doing more recently, and that drastically increased my ad revenue. So um, those are your options. And I, like I said, you can customize where the ads are on mid-rolls. I always do a, an ad before, and at the end, after a video, those are my defaults. And so... Evergreen content means that you have the ability to massively continue to earn from content over a longer period of time that if you do content that's very like topical, like uh, new daily news content or something like that. So there's, there's a lot of different things to understand there. And so I think that this this becomes like if you use uh, an information-based podcast, an interview-based podcast, interviews and podcasts are bingeable content, evergreen content. They're worth watching all the time. And some podcasts can be entertainment, like the H3 podcast, for example, can be entertainment. Call Her Daddy, that can be entertainment. Logan Paul's Impulsive podcast, that can be entertainment. So there's there's a lot of different ways that that can still be a podcast. It, it just depends. Mine is kind of an info dump. And the thing is the ad revenue can vary on these things. Um, I anticipate that mine will end up having um, very similar projections to Graham Stephan and his Ice Coffee Hour podcast after a while. And again, when I'm going over podcasts here, I'm literally just talking about the ones that make the most money in YouTube. Like your preferences are irrelevant whether you like a podcast or you hate a podcast, when we're talking about the money, it's kind of irrelevant what you like or what you don't like if we're breaking down how they make their money. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? So you'll find that we do that a lot here 
on the show is like, I will talk about people you like and that you don't like because I want all I care about is understanding how are they successful? How do they make their money? What can we learn from them? I have no problem learning from people I dislike. It's probably the way, the best way to succeed in business. Probably the best way to get through high school and college is to be capable of learning from people you don't like. <laughs> so uh, with that in mind, I would just, again, caution people to, when you're trying to learn about business, check your biases at the door, check your preferences at the door, because the most important and relevant aspect is, can I learn from this person and do they know something I don't know? And if they have a fan base or if they're making money, there's probably a reason for it. And I need to understand that reason and I learned to understand why someone can be successful doing things that I do or don't disagree with or whether I disagree with their content, but I agree with their business practices. That's another story. Or maybe I like the content and I hate the way they do business and I can learn from that. A lot of you could probably learn from bosses you don't like. A lot of you can probably learn from bosses you don't like. Heck, there are people that they have that relationship with me. There are people that hate my personality, but guess what? I became too good to ignore. I became too good to ignore for them. And that can be a real thing. So, uh, and I've actually even turned some people around on, they didn't like me at the beginning, but then they love me now because at some point they got to a place where I had a fan talk about this. I might actually bring her on the show at some point. I had a fan who didn't start as a fan. She actually started out actively disliking me. And as she went further and further into her career and she started looking for information, she realized she couldn't avoid me. I became unavoidable. And the more she started listening to me, she started agreeing with me. And then eventually she actually really started to like what I had to say because it started to align a lot more to where she was. I also think that I, over the years, grew and mature as a creator. So that could have something to do with it too. World According to Briggs, thank you for showing up, homie. Uh, so World According to Briggs just dropped a $50 super chat. That is the record so far for the podcast uh, because we're, we just got monetized. It's actually like the first live stream since we've been monetized and we've already gotten so many wonderful people supporting. So I think we're up to now maybe $65 or $70 just in super chat donations. So really appreciate you. And and it's a really good learning demo for anybody watching this, that this is what becomes possible when you build a community. Um, I remember when I used to be a kid working in the mall, I could work a full shift and not necessarily make the money that I made during this live stream. <laughs> so that's actually just something really interesting to think about. Um, Hill North says people that do unboxing of products on their channel, are they subject to copyright strikes from the manufacturer of the product? So this is an interesting question. And the answer is typically no, this does fall under original content and they don't have the right to it in terms of any copyright because there's no copyright on the content or the way that's being made or produced. It's all fair use. Most manufacturers and most companies actually love the free promo and free publicity. Uh, NP says, I love your detailed videos. I always learn something new. Great motivation. Thank you for that. Really do appreciate you. So uh, there, there are a lot of things here to kind of unpack around this monetization stuff with YouTube. Something I did want to bring up is, yes, you can be vulnerable to brands doing copyright claims if you use video or audio footage 
from the brand. And so that's the case of what happened to Totally Not Mark with uh, Toei Animation, uh, a Japanese IP holder for things like Dragon Ball and um, One Piece, um, like deciding to claim his content. They claimed 150 videos, a very large part of his body of work, if not almost all of it. And so that takes away from him and his team being able to continue to make money on that content. He's got a lot of outpouring of support from the community, but it's just a really bad situation for him. The other thing um, in a situation that's different from that, though, is when you're demonetized based on YouTube's advertiser-friendly guidelines and policies. And so this uh, can happen in a lot of situations, uh, mostly if your content has too much vulgarity, um, cursing, you cover sensitive topics. Philip DeFranco is a primary example. He's a huge YouTuber, OG YouTuber, one of the first here on the platform. He constantly gets demonetized like because of the sensitivity of his topics. And that's why he then has to make sure that every video has a sponsor and every video also plugs his own products that he directly sells. Kawi uh, Katana, thank you for the $5 super chat. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and their question is, how do you get your name out there for people to watch? Do you share your video on other social platforms? I have the 1K subs, but not getting the views. When it comes to the views, like I said, topics, titles, and thumbnails are going to do it more than anything. Topics, titles, and thumbnails dictate viewership, straight up. As for other social platforms, sure, for years now, for like 10 years, I've been growing more than 10 years, probably since like 2009, I've been growing Twitter. That helps a little bit. The best thing theoretically is for you to either get people, get other people to share your stuff in Reddit, Discord groups, maybe Facebook groups, but the best traffic is if you get it, the traffic directly from YouTube in theory. But if you just need the watch time, and I don't care where you get it and neither does YouTube if you just need the watch time. But in terms of getting viewership up front, getting higher click-through rates, you're going to have to make the make competitive thumbnails. If you're phoning it in with your thumbnails and you're just taking five minutes to make your thumbnails, if you don't have a graphic design background, it's hard to get views on thumbnails that aren't working. It's hard to get views on topics that a bunch of people don't care about. It's hard to get views with titles that don't mean anything to me. Um, so if you want, you want to get views and you want to then get the watch time, what you're going to have to do, what any and all of you would have to do is you have to make videos about topics that people other than you, a large amount of people do care about. Then you need to, and you can figure out what people care about. You can do some keyword research. You can use tools like TubeBuddy or vidIQ. I'm sponsored by TubeBuddy. I've used both TubeBuddy and vidIQ. I like them both. You can use keywords everywhere. You can use Google Trends. You can use whatever you want as a keyword research tool. My preference is TubeBuddy. Here's the thing. You can find out what topics people care about and have attention. If you're part of a culture and a community, you also know what topics have attention and what people care about. If you're part of a culture and a community, you know, in theory, what you would watch and you should, and here's the easiest thing. Find something, if you're a small YouTuber, find a topic that has 100,000 to a million views on that topic already, but the videos that have been about that topic may not be as fresh anymore, and then you need to make 
as good of a title and as good as a thumbnail as a video that has 100,000 to a million views. If you can make a title and a thumbnail as good or better than a video from a creator that has a million views or 100,000 views, I do not care how many subscribers they have. That is not your problem. YouTube gives you impressions. This channel is a primary example of that. If we go into reach under YouTube analytics, impressions, and then you get views. So you have to get impressions. YouTube will give you impressions even if you are a small channel. This channel currently has about 1,600 subscribers, 1,600 subscribers. We can see that 43% of our traffic in the last 28 days is from YouTube recommending the channel. You can get your channel recommended if people care about the things that you're talking about. So you have to make content about things that people already care about. If you're making content that only you would care about, it's much harder. So it's much harder for like a vlogger if they're not tapping into um, something that people already care about. So this is something I taught one of my students, um, Elliot, family of seven, right? The Elliot family of seven. Um, I taught him uh, when we did coaching a lot more about with the content that they could make, especially around their family, how to tie into existing brands that people are familiar with and care about and how to make exciting headlines. You have to learn how to do that as a YouTube content creator to be successful. You absolutely have to learn how to write good headlines, how to research and pick good topics. And for a lot of you, the best way to do it is to research like what content already has interest around it, find a spinoff topic, and then make a better title and a better thumbnail than that, and then make a different video. Do not copy someone's video. You can look at titles, you can look at thumbnails, do not copy them, but one-up them. Even as a small YouTuber, you can one-up them because they already came up with the original idea. You can come up with a spinoff idea, you can come up with a remix idea, and then make your own version and your own content without copying them. They already did the hard part. So you can do that research, because here's my point. If you are even 1% as successful as a video with a million views or 100,000 views as a small YouTuber, that means that you stand to get 1,000 to 10,000 views if you are 1% as successful as them. And that's all you need. So as a small YouTuber, if you're worried about competing with big YouTubers or whatever, make a title and thumbnail that says, you know what, I should make a title and thumbnail that's as good or better than this, and I should start there, and then I should make the best video that I'm capable of making without stealing their ideas. Because that is your first barrier to entry, is if you can't get people to care about the topic, you can't get them to say, that title speaks to me, or that thumbnail is interesting enough for me to stop scrolling or stop looking at other options to figure out how to waste my time for five to 10 minutes, you cannot get them to click on your videos. And if you cannot get them to click on your videos, you've already lost the battle. Doesn't matter if you shot in 4K, doesn't matter if you had drone footage, doesn't matter what your personality is. If you cannot get them to click on your video, you have lost. <laughs> if you cannot get somebody to click on your video, you have lost. And so many of you refuse to take the extra time to make an extra good thumbnail. A lot of you are phoning it in on your titles and then wondering why no one's excited about watching your content. And a lot of you are picking topics that you know that there is not an audience for. You're picking topics that you know people are not excited about. 
except, you know, well, you like it, but it's like, but if you were watching that from a stranger, would you get excited? Would you watch that? Or would you watch something from a big YouTuber? Like, that's what you're up against. You have to get that. You have to do that. You have to do that. So that's what it comes down to. And it doesn't matter how many subs you have. It doesn't matter. That is every single YouTuber lives or dies by their topic, their title, their thumbnail. And people only get massive views when they have a good topic, a good title, a good thumbnail, and then are also the beneficiary of good timing. And as far as I'm concerned, your topic, title, and thumbnail, along with your timing combined, are more important than the quality of your video. They are more important than how good your video is. Because you can't even get me to watch it if you fail those. It doesn't matter how good it is if I'm not even going to give it a shot. If I'm not going to give it a chance. If you lose on getting attention, if you lose on someone being interested, if you cannot get that to happen, it doesn't matter how good of a video you made because nobody will watch it. So if you lose on topic, title, thumbnail, and timing, it doesn't matter how good the video is. It straight up doesn't matter because a good video that nobody will watch isn't going to help you, especially if your goal is to get the uh, watch time that you need to qualify for monetization. So thanks for another $5 super chat. Um, Yeah, no worries. So Elliot says, we started spend to spend more time on making thumbnails than editing. Also, the highest traffic source is 46% browse features. So yeah, browse features is the YouTube homepage. Once you win on the YouTube homepage with strangers who aren't subscribed to you, that's what it's going to take to be much more successful on YouTube at the end of the day. Can somebody who doesn't know you watch this content and click on it, be interested in it, and enjoy it? It's a yes or a no, and that's uh, how you win at the end of the day. That's how you win at the end of the day. Um, I cannot stress to you enough how important that is. It's, uh, it's, and it's not even close. That's the thing about it. When I say that's important, it's literally not even close. Like, if you want to know, like, what will make you the most successful in YouTube, it really will come down to topic, title, thumbnail, and timing. Sure. After that, you have to make a passable, decent video. And by that, I mean a video that can get 35 to 55% average view duration. But if I can't get you to click on the video, what does it matter? You got to get people to click on the video. That's where the views are going to come from. You care about the views. You're getting paid for the ads. You're getting paid for the performance of the videos. Well, you need the views. You need the click-through rate. But then you can't cheat and fake your way to success. You need people to actually watch the content. So you need as many people to watch the end as possible. And you need them to watch more content from you. So you actually have to make good content, decent content. You have to reach the threshold of accept acceptable quality. And you have to make an entertaining or informative video. So you still have to make good content. But you can't make good content and put it in bad packaging, bad marketing. How many great movies have died and not really gotten what they deserve and gotten their flowers because the marketing sucked? Think about that. Think about that. The marketing sucks. 
the trailer was bad or was polarizing the video, the, the movie underperforms. You, you think YouTube's different. And so that's, you know, entertainment is entertainment. What we consume in terms of content is what we consume. And so you have to get it right. And so that's the thing. Now there is a such thing as making search friendly content. My friend technically T here is a tech creator. It's right there in his name, right? It's a, it's his name, like searchable content. Like, and by the way, thank you everybody who does smash the like button. I actually need the rest of you who are live and watching, or if you're watching the replay and you haven't already, I need you to smash that like button. I need you to absolutely destroy it. And uh, that would be greatly appreciated. Now, with that being said, stuff like camera gear, stuff like beauty reviews, these kinds of things, um, search friendly. Evergreen can be good forever. You can earn from ad revenue, but more importantly for a lot of us creators who do this stuff, we earn thousands of dollars because of the affiliate revenue. Because if somebody is looking for advice on buying a camera or buying a lens or buy, you realize like one lens sale for me from an affiliate standpoint, I made $90 on one sale. I made nine, I made almost a hundred dollars recommending one camera lens to one person. That's it. With that upside compared to trying to make $100 in YouTube, it's not even close. It's not even close. Um, so it just depends on what niche or industry or field you're in terms of some of your earning potential here. And like I said, with some things, a lot of people sleep on Amazon affiliate because they're thinking of like the cheap stuff because they're thinking, oh, can everyone in my audience afford this? I'm going to teach you another secret about you making money on YouTube and how it works. You should do things that everyone in your audience can afford. Then you should do things that like people with like average to above average income can afford. And then you should really still make stuff only for high rollers every once in a while because those high rollers, if you have an audience of, let's say you have an audience of a thousand people, right? Okay, stuff that a thousand people can get that's worth 10 bucks is massively helpful and, and like most people can come up with $10 for you. So if you have a thousand true fans and they come up with 10 bucks, 10 grand is really good money, right? A hundred people in your audience though, that can come up with a hundred bucks is still 10 grand. And 10 people in your audience that can come up with a thousand dollars is still 10 grand. So if you only cater to what can everybody afford, you're leaving two thirds of the money on the table instead of thinking low, medium, and high. So all of a sudden, if you only cater to the people who can spend $10 with you in this scenario, okay, $10,000 is great. 10,000 is not 20,000 and 10,000 and 20,000 is not 30,000. By not giving people the option to participate at the level that they are comfortable with and that option just existing, you're leaving potentially two thirds of your potential on the table because you're too scared. And all you have to do is create value that people at that level would want, would pay for. And by the way, I'm not even talking about $1,000 up front. I'm talking about $1,000 over the course of a year or over the course of a lifetime of relationship. It can be however many transactions that would need to be. Same thing for $100. It can be however many transactions that needs to be. So if you don't have, like I've talked about in the business side of YouTube videos, you don't have like that $1,000 potential LTV, lifetime value uh, opportunity, you're leaving so much on the table 
And it's largely because you're scared or you don't know how to create that much value. And so that's a problem. So um, when you do these things right and when you diversify, you know, that could be a thing. And if it's not 10 people in your audience, well, what if it's the brand relationships? Because a lot of people, they go, oh, well, that's still too absurd or that's still too far off from me. It's like, well, not when you talk about brand deals. So what if you have 10 brand relationships? If the brand relationships are worth $1,000, $5,000, $10,000, well, all of a sudden we're talking about some real money. So 10 brand relationships can be very lucrative. Um, you know, 100 people in your ecosystem that become paying recurring members, that could be massive amounts of value, massive amounts of revenue. And again, 1,000 people who can do a $10 transaction here or there several times a year, well, that adds up significantly. So, um, you know, a lot of people complain about the 1,000 subscribers to monetize. Well, guess what? 1,000 true fans is what it would take, regardless of what you think. Like, it, that's what it would take in general anyway. And so that's where it can be very significant in terms of your potential and your value. But here's the kicker. You don't need YouTube to give you, you don't need 1,000 subscribers and 4,000 hours of watch time to start selling T-shirts and merchandise with Spreadshop, zero dollars up front and zero time you can monetize on day one if you have t-shirts to sell. Hard to sell t-shirts though with your logo and your name on it when you don't have a fan base. So the problem is a lot of people try to do it off of their logo or their fan base. Make something so dope that it doesn't matter if they're a fan of yours, that someone would want to buy that if they just saw it at Walmart or at the flea market, they'd pay 10 bucks for that shirt anyway. That's the problem. People won't just make cool stuff. If you just make cool stuff, you won't have a problem making money. Like whether that's your videos, your merchandise, uh, print on demand products, whatever. If you make cool stuff, people will buy it. Or if you advocate for cool stuff from an affiliate standpoint, people will buy it. So those are the those are some really important parts of monetizing before you even get AdSense is you could be an affiliate of companies that you actually rock with and buy like me and technically T do, or you could make your own merchandise and it just has to be something that's for the culture. And then you can win on that. If you make something for the culture, you can win on that. And so um, those are definitely ways you can monetize from like day zero on YouTube. And like, yeah, a lot of people like make, make very lame, crappy merch. And so that's why they struggle or their merch is all about them instead of about the culture and about the community. If you make something about the culture and the community, that's how you're successful. This is something that I teach my coaching clients all the time is that how invested are you in the culture that exists around the content that you're making? And do you understand them? And are you monetizing the culture? And a lot of people fail to do that. And that's why they struggle. They don't understand what people in their ecosystem are willing to give their money for, they're gonna buy something. And that's the other thing. A lot of you are struggling because you're you you you're projecting your own money anxiety onto your audience and they may not have that same money anxiety. And then you're also forgetting that regardless of your money anxiety, you are buying things. You're not holding on to that cash as much as you might want to or would wish to or maybe even should be. You're spending money on something. And so the, one of the things that you can do is just make sure that if someone spends your money on you, spends that money on you, that they're getting good value, they're getting good experience and they're spending money with somebody that actually does care. So just remember, they're gonna spend the money with somebody. 
It can be a faceless organization or it can be you. They're going to spend that money. They're going to spend $10 with somebody. They can give it to a multi-billion dollar multinational corporation that doesn't care about them or they can give it to you. They can give it to a conglomerate or they can give it to you. They can give it to somebody who's already rich or they can give it to you. Why not you? Maybe it might be better for that 10, 20, 30, $50 to find some way to your pockets instead of to somebody that doesn't care or somebody that's not delivering the same value or quality as you. Or again, to a faceless corporation that doesn't need it. Like you have to think about it. That money's going somewhere. That money's going somewhere. Might as well go to you at that point. That's my thought on it. And I just think, I wish more creators would embrace that philosophy of I will just make dope, awesome stuff. I'll just create tremendous value. I'll just create awesome things for my community and anyone who wants to rock with me. And if they spend $10, they'll feel as good about it to where they'll like be like, ah, I could have spent 20 and I wouldn't regret it. Regret it. Just, just give the value. If you are going to rep brands, rep brands that you have spent your own money on. If you're going to rep the brand and you haven't spent your own money before with them, probably not a good idea. It's it, like the exception will be if it's an established brand and the only reason you haven't spent there is you ain't been able to afford it because that's different. Like, let's be real. Or if it's that you're breaking down or recommending the things that the pros use, because then, yeah, it's probably out of your budget, but you could still justify recommending it to whoever has the pockets for that, because then that makes sense. So you just have to do things that make reasonable sense, and then the dollars will come. If you do things that make sense, the dollars will come. So there you go. If it doesn't make, doll if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make dollars. And if it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. So both ways. Both things are true. If it makes sense, it'll eventually make dollars. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so with that in mind, I think I covered most of what I've been thinking of when it comes to YouTube monetization. I guess the last thing I could cover here is the application process. Uh, I applied and I got approved within 24 hours. That is not the norm. It is not the norm to get approved within 24 hours. What I believe is this. The vetting process, excuse me, the vetting process for the YouTube application process largely comes down to them verifying that you're making original content that has not been stolen from anybody else and any um, IP holders, right? So basically they need to verify that your content's original or that it is fair use and it's justifiable and that it's not vulnerable to things like copyright claim per se, right? So they need to verify that you've been making original content. They need to verify that this is not generated generated content, meaning that you generated this with like a text reader or an automation, or that's not slides only with no commentary. That's not somebody else's content that you free booted to the internet with no commentary. They are looking for, okay, is this low hanging fruit? That's what they are trying to determine. Is this low hanging fruit? Or is this something that you made and that you've earned the right to monetize? So that's like really important to them. They're trying to uh, verify that. So um, they're, they're, so the podcast easily, easily meets those qualifications without question. So that's the thing. 
They don't care in terms of with regard to their repurposing. The repurposing is looking at whether you took content from somewhere else, someone else, and um, is this non-original? So that's what they're looking at. They Or did you make the this content not a variation of each other, meaning that you're doing the same thing and spamming the same thing over and over, and it's repetitive content? They need to determine and verify that. They need to determine that this content doesn't break any community guidelines, and this is you know ad-friendly. They need to determine those things. This podcast almost never curse or use any explicit language ever at all in this podcast the closest is the d word and that's it so there is there's that part of it so easy to qualify on that the podcast is long form original content live streaming so easy to qualify on not having to worry about copyright fair use any of those things uh originally produced audio tracks and things like that for it and intro outro so um no worries there. They don't care if your intro and outro is the same as far as repurposed content. They don't care about that. So the the podcast was very easy to pass all of the application thresholds of what they do concern themselves with and what they do worry about with regard to the, um, the process. So even being in the queue and also the fact that so much of my content, in my case, because I was uh, blitzing and going nearly daily for two weeks, um, it was really easy to look at the inventory of my content and see that it's high quality, well-produced, um, thoughtful content, and you don't have to watch a lot of it to verify it and to understand the gist of, okay, this is not going to be problematic in any way. So there, you know, there is a lot here to what that application process looks like in terms of why was I approved so quickly? And it's because I don't send up any red flags. My content is clean. There's no real cause for concern because it's original content. It's not edgy or controversial. Um, it's easy to use their text scanning technology and look at the transcripts of my thing and say, oh, non-problematic, no worries there. And there. And so also the long form nature of the contest means that, okay, he's not repurposing content. He's not faking the content in terms of like, uh, spamming stuff that's already been pre-made or made over and over again. These were live streams. So like it was much, much easier for me with all of those things in my favor to rapidly move through the review process of being monetized. They usually take up to a month. They can take up to a month, but I was in the queue and I moved immediately through the queue because there were no flags for my channel in terms of that. I also already had an AdSense account set up. You should have an AdSense account set up in advance so you can just link the that to your YouTube channel and then boom, it's really easy. And so between, okay, he has the watch hours, he has more than enough watch hours. The concentration of almost all of my watch time was very recent and I already had the subscribers for a long time and was still growing new subscribers. So for me, those things made it very easy that when I applied, it was less than 24 hours for me to be approved. So getting approved for the AdSense program for YouTube monetization, really easy when you don't throw up any red flags. And like I said, not throwing up red flags is actually pretty easy. It's pretty straightforward in terms of that when it comes to your monetization.
So when you do those things, it's not really difficult to get YouTube to approve your channel pretty quickly. I didn't even have to tweet at you tweet uh, tweet at Team YouTube, which most people is what they do is they tweet at Team YouTube and Twitter and try to say, "Hey, I qualify. Where am I at the queue? Whatever." Like it's like I didn't even have to do that. I just waited it out, and that is what allowed me to get monetized pretty easily and start making money on YouTube. And once you do get approved, you have to turn the ads on on your previous content. It will prompt you for that. It'll prompt you for that. And the other thing it'll do is you'll have to turn on the super chats and that will allow you to get super chats like this one I got from Consumer Appliance Report. Uh, thank you, friend, for the uh, $9.99 super chat. How do we go about getting a coaching pro coaching from you as a content creator? Well, if you want to work with me, um, then you go to www.awesomecreatoracademy.com. Awesomecreatoracademy.com is where I do my coaching. Uh, I offer one-on-one -on -one coaching for creators, do YouTube channel reviews, paid. Uh, we also have a group program and membership you can join there. Uh, there's some other things I'm introducing, virtual workshops. Hopefully we'll be doing in-person workshops provided that the pandemic subsides at some point. Uh, the world opens up again, we'll do in-person workshops and stuff like that. And yeah, I don't have like courses right now, but those are coming in 2022. We're starting probably with the Brand Deal Secrets course where I'll do um, one of the only dedicated courses that has ever been created specifically and exclusively around everything brand deals all in one place. So that'll be a future product release. But yeah, the main thing is if you want to work with me, you go to awesomecreatoracademy.com. And also we have some other products there like the starter kits. So those are pretty good. Um, what else did I want to talk about before we go? One thing that I think is really interesting when it comes to like YouTube monetization is again, a lot of people overestimate, um, the YouTube ad revenue situation and they don't look at other monetization streams that they can get. And they also don't look at things like they're worried about live streams hurting their channel. They don't look at the value of just being part of your community and being able to do things like the super chats that you guys use to directly support. That's going to dramatically go a long way toward the podcast being um, very viable financially. The other thing that a lot of people drastically underestimate is the, the value of selling your own products and services directly to your community like I do with like awesomecreatoracademy.com or with some creators do with their merchandise or with their print on demand products or posters or other things or their digital products. There's just so many ways to go about this. And those things are better for cash flow than the ad revenue, sometimes more than the brand deals if you don't have those in place yet. Live streaming has so many upsides that it outweighs the downsides in my opinion. So I, I think that a lot of people are underestimating the value of a live audience and a live viewership community. Um, and for me, that's why also doing the podcast, I just want to go Monday through Friday and go live for like an hour, hour and a half. And that will be my Monday through Friday. And I think that it just brings the community closer. And I think it's a different style of content. And I think that live streaming, live streaming is going to be one of the biggest opportunities in YouTube 2022. Hands down, live streaming will be one of the best opportunities for YouTubers in 2022, more people could get monetized if they thought that way. And if they thought about the value of live content, it also is one of the best ways to get comfortable on camera as far as I'm concerned. 
So definitely uh, something to think about there. But that's it for this show. We're going to do a quick uh, Q&A with the live audience. But other than that, it's been a great episode. And I cannot wait to see everybody tomorrow. If you haven't already, make sure you smash the like button. If you are on Spotify or Apple, please leave us a five-star rating and a review if you're getting any value from the show. And remember that if you want to work with me or if you want to buy any of the digital products, it's Awesome Creator Academy. Dot com. Catch you next time. Stay awesome. This episode has ended, but your creative journey continues. Visit createsomethingawesometoday.com and access all links and resources mentioned in today's show, all designed to help you create something awesome today.